let's turn our attention back to uh, the subject matter at hand. We're going to uh, be talking tonight um, about uh, more policy positions, if you will. It's a, the, not the cleanest way I know how to speak on, on this, but it does help me to, to frame that this is not just things that um, Christians kind of pick out of thin air. These are major policy issues that affect us, and as we think about voting, and our engagement even beyond voting, I think voting is about the, the, the shallowest end of political engagement that you can be in, involved in. It requires the least amount of education and the least amount of work, and uh, Christians are really good at gravitating towards those things. Um, so uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 26 uh, and 27. If you would, stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word this evening. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, this is God's word to his people. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is God's word to us, and we're thankful that he's preserved it for us. We need to pay close attention to what it says to us as well. Let's pray once more tonight. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for these students, their faithfulness to come on a cold and dreary, rainy night uh, to consider how we are to be involved politically in the world around us. And, and not just to be involved politically as any other citizens, but as citizens of a kingdom that is far greater than the one that we even sit in. While the world uh, around us wants to talk about making America great again or unifying a country and moving it in a different direction, Father, we know that your kingdom, we, we pray what, what you instructed us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so help us tonight as we try to regain prophetic ground Help me tonight, uh, help me to uh, feel a freedom uh, to speak, uh, to, to let uh, loose, uh, to speak as a dying man to dying men. So be with us now as we encounter your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I read the following. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that line or lines comes from the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. Reading from Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, it states, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among several states which may be included within this union according to their representative numbers which shall be determined by the adding of number of free persons including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed and three-fifths of other persons. This is from the Constitution. They're already in direct conflict. We'll talk about that in a moment, but what was necessary to fix this misrepresentation of all people are created in the image of God in our founding documents? Well, three amendments. The 13th Amendment 
1865, which outlawed slavery. The 14th Amendment, it passed in 1868, which grants citizenship and equal and civil rights to African Americans and slaves who were emancipated after the American Civil War. And then the 15th Amendment, passed in 1870, guarantees the right to vote cannot be denied based on race, color, or previous conditions of servitude. 15th Amendment passed in 1870, and yet the Civil Rights marches of the 1960s were necessary to gain African Americans the right to vote, one that was guaranteed to them almost 100 years prior. Yet we find ourselves tonight wrestling with the issue of race, and not just race, but intimately connected to the issue of race is the issue of life. Because in the United States right now, the average cost of a abortion ranges from $400 to $2,000, while the average cost of a domestic adoption in the United States is $40,000. We were lucky. We adopted, and because of a program where people gave sacrificially, we operated on a sliding scale and didn't pay nearly that amount of money. But my friend, Thad, after having three children, decided uh, with his wife that they were going to adopt, and Juniper was adopted, and it cost over $40,000. We find ourselves tonight intimately connected with race and life issues. And if you thought last week was spicy, this week makes it look like it. I don't even know what not spicy is. So, that's all I've got for an introduction, because I don't think you can beat a whiz-bang like that. So we've got to ask ourselves, let's start with issues of life. Let's just go and talk about the issues of life. I, I want to speak tonight, and I, I want you to hear me clearly. Voting is the least you can do. It is the absolute bare minimum. And believe me, if U.S. citizens could come up with a way to do something even below that, they would. And evangelical Christians who like to act pious and holy would applaud them in their way al along the way. So tonight, while we think about being involved and engaged politically, I'm going to challenge you to think beyond just what you're going to potentially do in six days. Because in reality, and we're going to touch on this next week, in reality, a sovereign God sits over the heavens and he declares and ordains all that takes place. And so November 3rd will come, and November 4th will come, and November 5th will come. And the question you've got to ask yourselves on those days is, Am I living in light of and in line with what God's expectation is for me? Make no mistake, come November 3rd, or come November 4th, people will sit behind their keyboards, whether they be on their desktop or in their palm, and for some people the sky will be falling and the earth will be burning. And to quote the eminable great character, Josh Lyman, some will drink from the keg of glory. 
the Christian should not operate in these ways. For our president, he's not, we don't need no stinking king, remember? We're, we're the opposite of the Israelites. Americans are like, we don't want a king. We want a president. So we'll dump some things and toss some things and have ourselves a little revolution. No taxation without representa- representation. The only problem with becoming so in love with the United States of America is that you forget that your citizenship ultimately doesn't reside here on earth. Furthermore, it is comical tonight to brothers and sisters across the globe to even be able to have these discussions because their governments have gone so far in the opposite direction on both of these issues that they even have no voice. It is laughable for a a European Union leader to get up and suggest that he is going to run on a pro-life party. He can't even find one. They don't exist. It becomes problematic when we start to think about our Christianity being tied to politics. So what does the Bible say, right? What does the Bible say about these things? How does the Bible address the issue of life? Well, the Bible is is expressly clear. We just read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that life begins in the womb. Life is created by God and begins in the womb. Now, Genesis 1 affirms that God is the creator of life. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, affirms this and takes it a step further, talking about how you were formed in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Some of you were already being knit together as your dad's friends were waving something over his face because he's not ready to be a dad yet. And and some of you, your dad's still not ready to be a dad yet. I hang out with him. This is not good. You were knitted together. You were placed together by an almighty God who makes no mistakes. Yes, sin affects the world around us. So sometimes we come out with what are commonly referred to as birth defects. But nothing that happens in the womb happens by accident. And God, the sovereign one, says that person regardless of what man may call his defects, still has worth, dignity, and value. So the next time you run by the sweet little face of a a child with Down syndrome, it's not an accident. They don't deserve to not have life because they're born with what some people determine to be birth defects. They are an image bearer. If Christians have any hope of reclaiming and I I mean this sincerely, any hope of reclaiming any ground that we have given up in in political theater, and I would say we've given up a lot, the only way we're going to gain that ground back is by a staunch commitment to this Imago Dei principle. And it's going to be uncomfortable for some people. It's even going to be uncomfortable for some of us tonight. Jeremiah 1, verse 5 says that God formed him in the womb and called him to be a prophet before he was ever born. If you read the book of Jeremiah, you Jeremiah and you're going, I'm glad I'm not Jeremiah. It's not fun to be a prophet to the nation of Israel, a rebellious as 
Hosea will refer to them as a, 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 a one that runs around with a whore. They're whoring. That's not, I don't want to be called to that. But God says, you are formed inside of your mother's womb. I, I, I formed you and called you to this task. Now, that should give us confidence, though, right? If God had formed and called Jeremiah to his task, then what he's formed and called us to do, we can accomplish with his help and his power, which means even being outspoken on issues that make people uncomfortable. One of my favorite texts, we read it around Christmas time, is, which Christmas is still right around the corner. We're not playing Christmas music, right? We're still in October. Slow your roll, Karen. Just hold off a couple more days. Around Christmas time, when we get there, we'll read about John the Baptist in his mother's womb, Elizabeth's womb, and he leaps for joy. You talk about kick intensity. I mean, that's got to be insane. So the Bible is repeat with these passages that speak that he is the creator of life, that he is the one who is forming, that he is the one who is placing us, that he's sovereign. Uh, furthermore, we know that he opens and shuts the womb. This is Rebecca, or Hannah, excuse me, in the temple pleading with God, give me a, give me a child and I'll give him back to you. We have a, a little sign hanging in, a, in Harper's room. For this child we have prayed. Hannah said, you give me a child, he's yours. And Samuel's born. And he drops him off with Eli, and God is going to use Samuel in a mighty way. In fact, he's going to use him in uncomfortable ways, because he's going to have to confront Saul, and he's going to have to anoint David while Saul's the king. You think it's bad to exist in a world where we have peaceful transfers of power, where one president says, no, you get to be the president, the people have spoken. That's not how it works in the times of David. What do you mean... Samuel's out anointing other kings. Those were legit kings in the Old Testament. Not kings and queens right now. These were off-with-your-head type kings. So, the reason why it's important for us to start here tonight is because in order to protect any life, you have to start with the one in the womb. In order to protect any life, you must protect the one that is in the womb. This becomes complicated. There are murky issues to deal with. And, and, and if I can be as transparent as to say it tonight, I'm, I'm frankly concerned that Americans think that if we suddenly overturn Roe v. Wade, the issue of abortion will just calmly go off into the dark distant night and we'll never have any more problems with this issue. And that could never be further from the truth. We have much work to do, but I'm fearful that Christians have become so focused on overturning one piece of legislation that they're willing to sell the farm to see that happen. And I can tell you, it gets awfully cold at night with the money from selling the farm to not have a farm to sleep in anymore. Abortion rates right now, currently in the United States, are at the lowest point that they've ever been, historically, since Roe, per 1,000 women and by race. Now, this is not an argument that we should not seek to continue to see 
abortion be overturned, outlawed, and illegal. That's not what I'm arguing for. But what has happened since the passage of Roe is that in 1972, Christians did not even think about abortion. In 73, Roe is, is passed. That legislation takes place. And Christians are then forced to become passionate about the issue. And because they have engaged, because Christians have stepped up to the plate and said, we're going to be passionate about this, we're going to advance the cause of places like pregnancy care centers. We're going we're gonna to advocate for life. We're, we're, we're going to speak about these issues. We keep making strides. We keep making strides. And we must continue to make those strides. But the way that you make those strides is not by legislation alone. It's by engagement. Engagement plus legislation. You say, David, why does this matter? Okay, well, let's just make this really simple. No one woke up this morning and made the decisions that they made based on whether or not they're going to get arrested. At least I hope not. Maybe some of you. I don't know. Some of you seem to have no restraints on the law. Some <coughs> around speeding have no restraint there. But here's the deal. Christians who continually advocate for life are speaking in ways and in terms that is consistent with the scriptures. But that's not just done at our polling places. Nope. The womb isn't the only place where we protect life. Christians must make a decision whether they will be merely anti-abortion or actually genuinely pro-life. And we are sitting on the precipice of a major decision inside of Christianity, whether we are actually as pro-life as we say we are. You say, prove it. Okay, I will. To be truly pro-life, this means that you must defend life from womb to tomb. From the moment of conception to the moment of natural death, and I'm going to belabor natural here in a moment, we advocate for life. This means Christians are going to have to reclaim prophetic spaces of speaking out against the unnecessary taking of life. This means Christians must be vocal about child abuse and neglect. It should break our hearts. Jesus goes so far as to say, anyone who hinders a little one from coming to me, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and be dropped in a body of water than to prohibit one of these little ones from coming to me. And yet, in the state of Missouri alone, we see rampant child abuse and neglect. Where are the Christian voices marching for the child who's abused and neglected? Christians must speak out against unarmed police violence. This is uncomfortable, I know. Some of you are going to be very mad at me for saying this. But there is not one person under the whole created order whose life does not have worth, dignity, and value. And more often than not, Christians find themselves leading out from the rear and not being out on the front flank of it. It is to our shame that there are people who seem to be more passionate about certain lies than, than, than Christians. 
Christians should also speak out against unnecessary gun violence. I know some of you are right now are going, don't step on my Second Amendment rights. When innocent lives are taken at will, 23 kindergartners snuffed out, went to school, were dropped off, got on a bus, went to school, someone came in and killed them. And Christians are like, don't take away my guns. Nobody's coming after your guns, but where are the Christians who are advocating for those 23 little lives? Where are the Christians standing up and saying, those lives matter? I was unthinkable. I couldn't even wrap my brain around it when Columbine happened. What do you mean that two kids would go in and shoot up their school and then 20 or 15 years later on the anniversary date, kids would pick out that date to go in and shoot up another school? And the Christian is like, don't take away my guns. Next one's going to be even more offensive, probably. Christians should be on the front line speaking out about officers who are killed in the line of duty. It's absolutely appalling the other day. It's enough to make me just, I just don't even know how to, I, I, I literally have run out of ways to cope um, with some of the lines of argumentation. The idea that because a police officer signed his name to a contract means he knew what he was getting himself into and therefore when he gets shot, oh, it's too bad, that's one of the hazards of the job. Are you kidding me? This is what happens when a culture becomes desensitized to death. 43 police officers have been killed in the line of duty this year alone. And I'm going to make a distinction here because that 43 number is misleading. That makes it sound like 43 guys who rolled into a, a, a bank robbery and guys were armed and they took their lives. I'm talking about not just shot in the line of duty. I'm talking about sitting in a patrol car and somebody walking up and blasting their windows out with a handgun. Where are the Christians advocating there? Where are our voices? We lose them? We're so vocal about the life in the womb, but that police officer who's just executed, let's just call it what it is, or the unarmed civilian who's executed, we shrink away. But the minute somebody talks about abortion, we talk about execution in the womb. Beloved, I'm telling you, there is so much ground for Christians to outflank in love as they speak to all of these areas where people's lives are taken for no reason other than we've been desensitized to the issue of life. Are these Christians who mourn every time a life is taken. A and now, we, as you continue to push in that direction, as you are not bothered by these things as a culture, you move to places of, uh, of euthanasia and assisted suicide. We start to say about older people, their lives aren't valuable, they contribute nothing to society, uh, they're a dead burden, uh, they're a weight. And that's going to increase as older and older people retire and live longer. The wonderful thing about old people is that they remind young people of all of the dumb things they did 
and the dumb things that we're currently trying to do again. It is absolutely shocking to me. And it might not be shocking to you, and I may be saying a name that you have no idea who I'm speaking of. But it's absolutely shocking to me that we are living in a culture and a society where Madeleine Albright has to write two books about the dangers of communism and socialism and, and their progressive moves into society because of what they do to life. But if we don't learn and listen, some of us would do well the next time that we say that the mask mandate is a modern-day holocaust to actually go read about the Holocaust. Or maybe we should all chip in and fly that person to Birkauer and Auschwitz, places that still stand to warn us against the evils of not taking life seriously. All of these issues, not just the issue of abortion, should factor into who we vote for at every level. At every level. At every level. Here's a reminder tonight that you want to keep police officers safe in your community. That means you have to vote for somebody other than just the president. It means if you want to keep people safe inside of your community, if you want to advance the cause of life inside of your community, you've got to care about your community. Which leads us inevitably to the issue of race. Flip over to Luke chapter 10. Beloved, I hope you hear my heart tonight behind this. Because I, I'm, I'm very fearful. I'm very fearful because as the culture subtly influences the world around us, it also influences the church. And before you know it, things creep in and we are unaware of how they affect us. So we talk about issues of life. Well, what do we do about issues of race? Look at Luke chapter 10 and, and we'll, we'll start in verse uh, 25 of Luke chapter 10. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Is anybody shocked that this guy is a lawyer, by the way? I love lawyers. They're image bearers as well. Jesus replied, verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. For people living in the city of Springfield or the surrounding area, race is not normally a concern that we have to think about. The only reason why we would think about it is because it's become a national issue. Consider this, that 88% of the population of Springfield is white. Willard is 93% white. Republic, 94%. Ozark, 95%. Nixon, 94%. And Bolivar, 93%. It becomes hard to become sympathetic with what you don't know and don't experience. And what ends up happening is this can cause us, as we live in what I affectionately refer to as a white incubator, to believe that race isn't an issue. But according to the scriptures, it's an incredibly important one. We, we read a scripture tonight of the salvific power of the gospel that moves us not to be seen as Jew or Greek based on our ethnicity, but in Christ. Jesus uses the parable of the Good Samaritan as an illumination of ethnic and racial bias to show how humans are created in the image of God. What's so appalling about this story? We read this story and we go, I want to be a good Samaritan. I, that, you know, we start Good Samaritan Ministries. We're all about, are you a good Samaritan? We got Samaritan's Purse, right? Operating OCC. Like, that's where we live. And yet we read this story and we know this story. And for those of us who are old enough to remember, that we remember even the flannel graph of this story, man. This is a countercultural story. Because here lay the Jew, an arch enemy, an ethnic rival of a Samaritan. And two Jews walk by, one on one side and one on the other. And the shocking part of it is that the hero of the story is not a Jew, but a Samaritan, the arch ethnic rival of the Jewish people. This Samaritan comes by and he scoops up this Jewish man and puts him on his own animal and takes him to an inn and pays for him to be kept and, and ministers to him. And Jesus' point is, you don't get to determine who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is anybody who also is a human. We oftentimes don't think rightly about race because we haven't even dealt with it in the church. Flip over to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And I, I, I promise you I am about to be done. The year was 2014. Jess and I had been married for two years. And we were rounding third on an MDiv. Little did she know that six years later I would still be in school. <laughs> Just kidding. I had gone home having no idea what I was going to write my master's thesis on. We uh, were still fairly newlyweds. We're not thinking about having kids. None of where we are today was situated in my brain. I had about eight different options for what I wanted to do, something in the field of New Testament. 
And when we were at home for a visit during the summer, somehow got on the issue of race issues. This is 14. This is predating a lot of what would launch the modern Black Lives Matter movement. Black Lives Matter wasn't even a, a thought process at this point. My dad shared with me a story. He, he shared with me a story about his good friend who was the assistant basketball coach at the Christian school that my dad coached basketball for. You see, he and his wife had joined the church that I grew up in. It was under the pastor that I surrendered to go into ministry under. This is long before Little Box comes around. There's no Dave Box in this picture. It's a mid-80s, and they join the church, and the pastor goes on a house visit to spend time with this new family that had already joined the church. He comes in, and he sits down across from him, the man and his wife, and in the course of conversation of learning about them, turns the subject and says to this assistant basketball coach at the Christian school that was connected to the church he had just joined, he said, we're excited, we're happy, We'd love to have you, but I think you might be more comfortable at the black church down the road. This isn't 1962, 1968, 1973. This is 1984 in Davenport, Iowa, the, 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 the heart of the Midwest. My dad said that to me, and I had no idea how to cope with that. The man who I surrendered to go into ministry would say something like that to people he had joined. This prompted me uh, to write on the issue of multicultural churches. It's been one that I've been passionate about for a long, long time. And it's really born out of this identity for the church. Because dealing with race starts in the church. Look at Revelation chapter 7 and verse number 9. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be our God forever and ever. See, if we want to fix a racial problem in this country, it's got to start in the church. And it's got to start by admitting that even going back to our founding, there were compromises made to make people less than full image bearers. That we've got to be able to say as a Christian organization, as a church, that we desire that our church will look as much as like heaven as we can possibly get it. There's nothing we can do about our towns being that astronomically white. But there is something we can do about making sure that every image bearer is welcomed inside of the walls of our church, inside of the walls of our college ministry, that we have a hope that one day, one day we will stand in heaven together worshiping our great God with people who don't look like us, don't talk like us, and don't sound like us. It's weird because sometimes, Jess knows exactly where I'm going here, sometimes I feel like I'm closer to heaven at the Dearborn Mall in Michigan where there are people speaking Farsi 
and, and, and they're, they're speaking Mandarin, and, and, and we've got a little Spanish here, and, 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 and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered. And I just, my heart aches for that to be here. Christians should lead the charge to see injustice overthrown. We, as a people, must guard those who are made in the image of God. And that starts with the way we speak and the jokes that we crack, the cultural assumptions that we make about people. It begins by being passionate of protecting all image bearers from top to bottom. Christians have to own this territory because we're the only ones that have a worldview that says that everybody matters. You cannot say that we weren't at least influenced by the language of the Bible in this nation's founding. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. What would it look like if Christians got back to believing? It would reframe the way that we think about issues of race, immigration, abortion, euthanasia, police reform, criminal justice reform. It would shape everything. But we've got to put on our biblical lenses, right? We've got to put on our gospel lenses. We can't be discipled more by the world than we are by the Bible. And so sometimes that's going to put us in conflicting positions. So sometimes my friends say, well, you're inconsistent politically. And I say, that's fine. I don't care. What are you going to do? I'm governed by this book. He's my king. He's my ruler. He's my president. You can go around the next four years, whoever's elected, and say, not my president, but he is my king. He calls the shots. He says everyone's lives matter. He says when a life is stolen, that's something to be heartbroken about. He's the one who says that little boy's life matters. That little girl's life matters. That police officer's life matters. That African-American man's life matters. That Latino brother's life matters. All of those lives matter, not because I say so and not because the administration says so, but because God Almighty who sits on the throne above all things says they matter. And you, brother, sister in Christ, have the opportunity to reclaim fallen ground. Let's stop making excuses and get back to believing that everyone regardless of their political affiliation, race, creed, color, or sexual orientation, is an image bearer. And that as an image bearer, are worthy, worthy of respect, and they have inherently inside of them dignity, worth, and value. Let's pray together.